What up, y'all? Welcome into the conversation here on the Young Turks. I am Rick Strom. Um, a quick introduction. I have seen this person live at the Vic Theater. I called it Vic at Vic. Uh, I am from part of the same area that he is from. He is an activist. He speaks for many people. And it is a damn honor to finally share a stage with him, even if it is not his own. It is the one and only Hassan Piker, everybody. No, Vic Mensa, everybody. So look, I was inspired when I first heard there's a lot going on. Um, your sheer honesty in the entire album. And in a past interview, I love how you said, like, what is what even is an album? Um, it's an EP, it's an album, it's a mixtape, it really doesn't matter. But then to, sh- to hear your sheer honesty again in the autobiography and many other projects that you've done, my first question to open up everything is where did this inspiration come from? Why do you do what you do? For me, music is catharsis. So I unpack, I deal with the things that have happened in my life, the things that pain me. I heal through music. So if I'm not being fully honest, imagine you're having a conversation with Hassan, he's your therapist. You know what I mean? And you are not telling him the truth. <laughs> how are you going to heal from that? You know what I mean, how can he help you the right way? So for me, it's like making the music is like therapy. And I, I have to be as honest as possible so that uh, I, I can assess myself, I can assess the world in the uh, m- most accurate way possible. You know what I'm saying? So it's and your I outlet. Also, and I, it's my outlet, but it, and I know it helps other people. Like I do it for me first and foremost. But I know that when I talk about my depression and my drug abuse or suicide and things that were dark that I was talking about in the, you know, in the song you mentioned, that so many people reached out to me and were like, this saved my life. At this moment, I was ready to end it. I had the means to do it. And I heard you talk about getting through it. Made me want to get through it. This is an effect, it sounds like, the cut he had on a lot of people. Word. 100%. So did you see that parallel as you were making this and when people were reaching out to you? For sure. I mean, Kid Cudi is definitely a big inspiration to me. Man on the Moon itself is like, oh, you know. So good. And, and the hooks in that album always inspired me and inspired me on the song There's A Lot Going On, actually. Like yeah. the, the, the rock tinge, you know. Um, all those are things that Kid Cudi is a pioneer of. Definitely. So your activism has now hit center stage. Um, with your Camp America video. If none of you have seen it, uh, it's an absolute must watch. It is the brutal honesty of what's going on at the border. Um, You told us a little story about how you've offended some people and how they have been really ticked off at the way you are visualizing simply what is happening. Um, You put white kids in cages because as you mentioned many times in your music, what? and here's part of it, what if the shoe was on the other foot? I mean, this is similar to Shades of Blue, right? When you were talking about uh, the white media coverage. What yeah, if this flint. were white people, right? right? So why, why, uh, why make this and why trigger so many people? Sometimes you got to force people into their humanity. Sometimes you have to shake people into empathy. I do want to say that all the kids in the video were hired professionally. The parents were all there. Parents were coming up to me being like, I really support your mission. One father brought both of his sons and he was like, Mm. I believe in this political statement. I believe that what's happening at the border is a human rights travesty and I want to help. And that's why I made the video. 
because I know that what I saw in Tijuana and the inhumane situations people are put into. I went about two and a half weeks ago, two, three weeks ago. We went, we performed outside of an immigrant prison called Ote Mesa near San Diego. And we crossed the border, went to Tijuana, met with asylum seekers, refugees. I mean, I, I saw a priest tell me that the mafia was coming to the shelter offering a thousand bucks for people's children because they can't even get in to make their claim for asylum. That's why I feel like it's necessary to make music about this. That's why I made the song, that's why I made the video, because, I mean, trying times, you know, it, they make an honest man. And that's, that's a lyric I had a long time ago, but real talk, like what you do when under pressure, and we're all under pressure right now. So mm-hmm. what you're talking about at this moment when we're under this pressure really defines you. What do you think about the juxtaposition of um, like the reaction that you got for having white children in cages in comparison to um, the reaction that people in media have to images that we saw recently of, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, a father and a child and, our two, uh, and his two year old uh, daughter um, washed up on the, uh, the Salvadoran uh, migrant Oscar Alberto Martinez Ramirez yeah. uh, washed up on the shore. In uh, the Rio Grande, um, these sorts so of these sorts of images uh, can't even get people to uh, can't compel a lot of these same people that got mad at you to action. And when they see uh, white children, even if it's uh, fictional, even if it's not even an, an actual uh, brutality, they they react in this visceral way. Well, that's white supremacy in action. That's the whole idea about white supremacy. That's what manifest destiny means. It means that it is my destiny to manifest your space. Mm. So whatever happens to you doesn't really concern me. That's the idea that racism in America is founded on. And that's what we see when someone says about the man that was washed up ashore, Oh well, he shouldn't have been trying to cross in the first place. Yeah. But then we'll be outraged when they see me make an artistic statement putting the shoe on the other foot, that lets you know that our lives are seen as less valuable to them. You know, I mean, that's why we have a Black Lives Matter. Uh, and, and that's why we make the music we do and we have the conversations we do, because I feel like we've gone a little bit too far. It's like when you, when you, see, when you see something else, we can't be content with being treated like subhumans anymore. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. We as the other, we as those that aren't wasp bloodline. We're not content with that anymore. We know that it doesn't have to be like that for us. So I do what I do. How young were you when you felt your first uh, experience of injustice? You know, when I was a kid, man, like growing up, I didn't, I never felt so racial, you know, because my mom's white from upstate New York and my dad's a West African immigrant from Ghana. He's a PhD. Both of my parents are super educated and I kind of felt like a little mixed kid, you know, I was playing soccer and skateboarding and doing all these things that other people in the hood were not doing. And it never occurred to me, you know, until I was around 11, 12 years old and I started being treated in a certain way by the world. It made me understand rap music. You know, when I was a kid, I didn't understand why 50 Cent was so mad. Then I'm <laughs> 11, 12 years old and the police are like, take your hands out of your hoodie before I punch you in the face. You know, I'm like, Hmm, maybe NWA was right about this, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that's that's really when 
I feel like I got a lot of identity and just started to understand my place in the world a little bit more. And were you always into political hip hop? Were you into like Chuck D and Public yeah, Enemy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned NWA. You know, first rapper I ever liked was KRS One. Oh, yes. And I got on KRS One through skateboarding, though, through the Zoo York mixtape. You know what I'm saying? Because I was all into Guns N' Roses and Nirvana and Weezer. And then I got to be like 11, 12, and I got it on the KRS One and really worked my way up from there. So I was always into a lot of political hip hop. And really, as soon as I started writing raps when I was about 14, they definitely had a tinge of social commentary. That definitely. was always how I was coming. So there's one thing that I want to turn to, and we're going to play this video of Laura Ingram. This is something that I've covered many times on the sports division at this network. It is the coverage that what is our polar opposite of Fox News and what they put out and how they speak not only about black people in this country, but also successful black athletes. Roll it. Create a new banner. This is a jump doc alert. I feel like our team as a as a country is not ran by a great coach. Must they run their mouths like that? You're great players, but no one voted for you. Millions elected Trump to be their coach. So keep the political commentary to yourself. Or as someone once said, shut up and dribble. Yeah. So I mean it's ironic that I'm wearing this, right? So um when I asked a few other athletes, covered the ESPYs recently, should athletes ever shut up and dribble? They all gave very profound, thought-provoking, no way in hell should we ever shut up and dribble. We are more than an athlete. That's why LeBron's company motto is more than an athlete. So when you're watching something like this, Vic, you're thinking what exactly as it's spewing out of her mouth? Well, the first thing that came to mind to me was how Trumpian and funny it was that she said, or as someone once said, and proceeded to quote herself. You know what yeah. I mean? I, no I, question. I mean, I'm like, when I see that, I know the face. I know the approach. I know the tone, the, just the way her eyebrows, it looks like racism. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm like, this is what racists look like in my life when they've said racist things to me, you know? And th that's what it is. It's like, I actually... I didn't go to NFL game ever since, you know? I, I haven't stepped back foot at Soldier Field because I'm like, man, I'm not, I'm not about that, that modern day slavery and that idea that, you know, we're gonna be calling black people nappy headed hoes and, and uh, SOBs. You know what I'm saying? And, and really just degrading them while making this big money off them. You know what I'm saying? It goes into the college into the college sports as well. Oh, it's like, yeah. in general, the whole industry is a bunch of very strong, athletic black men who are literally owned mm -hmm. by a few crusty old white guys. If that doesn't <laughs> scream plantation, yes. I don't know what does. But, you know, I appreciate people like Kaepernick and LeBron and, and Kevin Durant that, I mean, just are able to keep a dignity to them and are not phased by that mm. because we know our value, you know? For sure. I think there's also an element of, of um, like economically anxious, agitated uh, white folk who see uh, black athletes uh, gain notoriety and it signals to them, especially because of people like Laura Ingram and the racist commentary that they engage in, uh, they see the, these uh, people in positions of power and, and uh, people who are famous, people who are wealthier, better off than they are. And they feel like 
their place in the racial pecking order is now threatened. And I think that's a big part of the reason why they're, um, they behave this way though. Like uh, that that Donald Trump can get away with saying stuff like um, love it or leave it or uh, send her back. And I actually wanted to ask you about that as well. What do you think about the squad? Um, like AOC and and uh, Ilhan Omar, him, Rashida Tlaib, and Anna I Presley. Him. I love and, you so much. Yeah, and um, and the kind of um, race remarks they have to deal with on a daily basis for expressing their love for this country. Well, I really relate. You know, I relate to them on so many levels. They look like my cousins and my family and my friends. They look like the people that I know the best in America. Muslim and Latino or Latina, Latinx, um, and just people of color, man. Um, African as well, you know, it, that's so beautiful to me and so inspiring to us. So it was kind of mind blowing to me, not mind blowing, but it took me by surprise a little bit when they started receiving so much hate because on our side, we saw them get elected and we were just like, yes. Yep. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Some of our people, one of us, is in a position of power. Um, and I think at this point in time, I relate to them in another way as well because I've been in so many of the same situations and had the same finger pointed at me. Like I went to Palestine and I wrote an op-ed for Time magazine. I was going to ask you about Palestine. that as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean, like I was there, so people also called me an anti-Semite just because I spoke about the Palestinian struggle, and I, I'm, I'm so familiar with the the specific brand of racist vitriol that's being aimed at them because it gets aimed at me all the time. You know what, I put this out on Twitter the other day, and this is when Stephen Miller went on Fox News. I absolutely despise, while we're on this topic, as the Jew here. I mean, I cannot stand how Jews have been used as a shield for the way that many conservatives talk about this issue. It is always about, well, you know, this is super anti-Semitic. No, nothing Ilhan Omar said to me did I deem anti-Semitic one way or another, not at all. So this has been done many times in politics where a certain group of people has been disenfranchised or used as a political shield to push a narrative. Now what I'm seeing over and over again is, well, AOC is anti-Semitic and Ilhan Omar is anti-Semitic. Again, I know I'm repeating myself here. I don't find anything they did anti-Semitic. Not one bit, not well, one so drop at Anti-Semites all. that are calling them anti-Semitic. You I know what I'm saying? Like these people don't want, they don't want Jewish people at their country club. They don't <laughs> want black people at their country club. They don't want Muslims at their country club. They don't want Latinx people at the country club. You know, to them, they're definitely just using situations to put a label, you know, a negative label. Well, even someone like Ben Shapiro will excuse the anti-Semitism coming <laughs> from someone like Ann Coulter because she's ultimately pro-Israel. Um, and it's ironic when you think about that because even though Ilhan Omar, as you mentioned, didn't say anything anti-Semitic, she no. only uh, criticized Israel and it is absolutely warranted. Uh, they deflect it away from that. Uh, they shield it from uh, genuine criticism that Israel uh, should be uh, getting by claiming that it was anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. So they don't care. It's not. It, it's not that they care about it. I mean, I'm looking at the comments under your Breitbart article right now, <laughs> not the uh, not the, the the Israel one, which I was going to get to in a second. But and and people are calling you the real racist because you put white kids in cages. 
Congratulations, Vic. That's it's, awesome, man. I'm a racist, you know. <laughs> Way to go. It's, it's powerful. <laughs> yeah. Look, whenever you're getting ripped by people on Breitbart, specifically Breitbart, you're doing the right thing. You're absolutely. You know, one. Right I, I will say though that 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 um, that convoluted, like, I know you are, but what am I? Mm. Um, approach to the idea of racism is. You know, so interesting to me because you see it with Trump and with the uh, with the squad, how he's continuously referring to them as racists. He yeah. says this very racist group yeah. of you know liberal senators, and I'm like, ooh, you know, that's, they're racist for pointing that's it out. Tricky. Yeah. You're racist like, for pointing out my racism is like you know next very, level forty chess. That's very tricky. You know, I mean, it's like. We have our Merriam-Webster's definition of racism, uh, which is just uh, discrimination based on race. Uh, but I, I think, honestly, man, like as as time passes and and circumstances change, in in my eyes, I have a different definition of racism at this point. To me, racism has to be backed by power and ability to disenfranchise. That's real racism, mm -hmm. you know yeah. what I'm saying? And I'm sorry, but AOC and Ilhan Omar cannot be racist against Trump because they have no power to disenfranchise her. They can't be racist to white America. They can be critical, you know what I'm saying? But that racism cannot be given the same label as the very real Confederate slave-owning mm. brand of racism that dictates the right. Right. Yeah, but at the very like, even if they were being um, discriminatory against Donald Trump on the basis of the color of his skin, which they weren't. Orange. Yeah, <laughs> like, you know, like oranges. That would be citrus yeah, fruits. You're racist. That would be entirely different than against Clementines. Yeah, <laughs> which are the best with chocolate, by the way. Okay, um, real real quick, I want to turn to Chicago. Okay. Uh, something that is uh, near and dear to our hearts. Um, one of the rhymes that you put in 16 shots, which absolutely rings true today. The mayor ducking when he fired the superintendent, but resignation come with bonuses of recognition. So incredibly true, yet it's something that nobody really thinks about. And then when you tell Van Dyke, tell him I don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Best way to end anything. Yet, uh, even further, I believe you spoke about Rahm Emanuel, so I want you to elaborate Ooh. on this. Let's see real quick. Rahm Emanuel, somebody that's purely in politics for power, you know what I'm saying? Like no other reason. Somebody that you know, somebody that is in position because they want to help the city, not because they want the city to help them. What I remember when I was living in Chicago was something you put in 16 shots, which was, "Where's the tape? Where was the tape of Laquan?" Yeah. And now what we're hearing when Swalwell was even up there at the debate stage, he was going after Mayor Pete, being like, "You should have fired the chief. You should have fired the chief." Same logic applies to Rom. Do you think now that Lori Lightfoot is going to be at least better, if not higher, way higher than Rahm Emanuel was in bettering Chicago? I think that first of all, Rahm Emanuel definitely is aiming big. He he didn't just disappear, you know. He's clearly trying to get a more powerful position. He's got a cushy writing gig at the Atlantic now. I don't mm. see that being it, he, though. I feel like yeah, he's no, no, going no, for the oh, no, Of course yeah. not. He's just gathering yeah, influence. He's yeah. going for the gusto. He's going to run, run, you know? And um, Lori Lightfoot, I'm honestly not as 
you know, com- completely familiar with everything that she does because she's not actually from Chicago. So I didn't really know about her before. I was mm-hmm. more familiar with Tony Preckwinkle. Uh, right. But I do believe that it's dope to have a black female mayor of the city of Chicago. You know what I'm saying? The city of Chicago is demographically um, such a, a, a dark-skinned city. You know what I'm saying? There are so many people of color in the city of Chicago that it's dope. It's dope to have representation in that way. And also, like, Ron was such a dirty dog, you know? I knew it from the moment I first heard his voice. I knew it. He was yeah. on the phone. He was telling us. We were kids. He was telling us... Oh uh, yeah, my favorite band. Yeah, he was on the on the radio talking about my favorite band. This that I was in a band called Kids These Days when I was in high school. Then we came to perform his inauguration, and when it came time to call out all the groups, he landed on, on us and he was like, "Yeah, uh, that band. I really, I really, my favorite band again. What's y'all name? You know what I mean? I was like, "Okay, I know what kind of guy you are. You know, your yep. brother is is from from Entourage, and yeah. mm-hmm. this is this is your HBO. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And I dig it. So when the whole situation went down." His whole damage control with the Laquan McDonald thing and his delegation of responsibility trying to, you know, it was very serpentine, very political. And that's who he's been from day one. And Gary McCarthy, the police chief, I mean, all of them are guilty. Yes, absolutely. The reason I turned to Chicago is also because of this. You are trying to do your best to save as many lives as you can. You are putting out street medics, correct? Word up. In Chicago? Yeah. So essentially what Vic is doing is because he has seen it in his own family, he has seen friends, he's seen extended family, people are dying in Chicago, and you need to know how to react as quickly as you can in order to stop the bleeding and save a life. So could you expand upon that? So like, what are you, what training are you putting in in order to better the city? Yeah, basically, so we're... Training first responders in Chicago's most violent areas. So we're teaching them practical skills, how to use your driver's license to stop the blood flow from a wound, you know, how to create a tourniquet with your belt or your T-shirt. Um, and we've saved lives. I mean, we've taught kids how to react that have saved family members, that have saved friends when they've been shot. Where the reality of the situation is that we've been left behind. You know, and the resources have been sucked from our communities. And now it's time for us to save our own lives. I mean, it's it's something that I actually learned just a little tie back to the past was this idea was given to me in Palestine from an organization out of Gaza called Build Palestine. Mm. The kid was telling me how the ambulances don't come into Gaza because of the siege, so they can't get in and out. They're like, they have super long ambulance time waits and people are bleeding out before they even get a chance to be addressed medically. And I was like, wow, that sounds like home, you know? And it's, it's important to do those things. I know it gets heavy whenever you talk about it, but it's also, man, it's like beautiful, it's fun, you know what I'm saying? Like being in the community and being with the people, people, you know? Like not not just the top pops and, and the fancy faces, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like being with the people and Teaching the people how to take care of themselves. That's that's the Black Panther Party. You know what I'm saying? That's I mean, I got the the free Huey tattoo, you know what I mean? Got to do that on TV. <laughs> yeah, amen to that. 
right, unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, it absolutely sucks because I could talk to this guy for like 12 days straight. Uh, he is going on tour. We didn't even mention it with his new group, 93 Punks. Uh, Travis Barker is going to be included in there yeah, as Travis well. Barker, exactly this is showing how album. versatile of an artist this guy is. So please do check him out when he's coming to a city near you. McMaster, thank you so much, man. Thank you guys for having me, man. Really appreciate it. We'll see you all next time on The Conversation.